This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Montana U.S. Senator John Tester. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection of more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with U.S. Senator John Tester next. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. The National Crop Insurance Services provide individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. As a farmer, U.S. Senator John Tester knows the challenges associated with drought. The Montana Democrat says the oppressive heat and lack of rain in his state have been especially challenging over the past two weeks. What's been interesting about this drought, Jeff, is last fall we had so much moisture that it was incredible. I mean, some of the places in eastern Montana, they had a hard time getting the crop in because it was so wet and so muddy. And then we had a good winter, and then things kind of went to heck uh, in the spring and in and, and, and the eastern part, and it's kind of bled over to the west. I mean, uh, uh, for those folks who don't know how Montana set up, the western third is pretty much forested mountains. And the eastern two-thirds are plains. There's a few mountain ranges through there, but but for the most part, it's plains and grassland uh, originally. And now it's a uh, uh, it's a situation where where uh, you know since probably the end of June we've had ninety plus, hundred plus degree days, and there's really no end in sight for that. And it's moved up my harvest a couple weeks uh, over what it was, and so we're. We're going to be cutting. I'm sure there's people in the field today, as a matter of fact, where I'm at. Now, this is, what, the 11th or 12th of July, and typically you'd start cutting about two weeks later than this. But uh, but when it gets hot, you know, and things dry up, stuff ripens up, too, and, and that's the way it is. The eastern, I would say third, maybe half of the state, um, is in severe drought conditions, and 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 uh, to the point where, uh, what winter we'd say they're cutting for hay, the spring we just flat isn't isn't doing anything. It's just it's it's history, and we were able to open up CRP for grazing and haying that'll be opened up on the fifteenth uh, of July. Uh, but then as you go west, there's some there's some pockets that got some rain, and they're going to be you know they're pretty blessed to be honest with you. It's the way agriculture is. Half or a half an inch of rain makes you into a pretty good farmer, and some of these folks got uh, got got some timely rains. Uh, and, and then, and, and the further west you go, they had some good moisture this spring, but it's dried up now. If we ever get a, a storm with a bunch of lightning strikes, and that's not if, that's when. Uh, that uh, those whole Rocky Mountains with many dead trees are in it. It's going to be burning like crazy. I just don't know how they're going to handle it. The Forest Service and and private landowners too. So it's severe. Uh, you know, I was talking to Senator Langford. He's from Oklahoma, and he said they haven't had 100 degrees yet in Oklahoma, which is unbelievable to me. I mean, next uh, the end of this week, this weekend, we're supposed to have temperatures 105 degrees and. And that's hot. I mean, that's hot mm. for Montana. And it's not that we don't hit 100. We usually do hit 100 at some point in time, but certainly not for this many days in a row, preceded by total lack of precipitation. Before going to specific issues, let's talk around about for just a second. Uh, you're a rare breed. A farmer who is an elected official in Washington, 
how difficult to keep rural and agriculture issues at the forefront of committees and a full body of the upper chamber? Well, I think it's a challenge. It's a challenge because people have been uh, removed from the land. Agriculture, you know, used to be uh, everybody was involved in agriculture, and still are if you eat, but the truth is they were involved in production agriculture. And over the, the many, many centuries of this this country and decades, uh, we've seen less and less people living off the land, and when you have less and less people living off the land and it, it becomes disconnected by generations, which it has today, uh, then those issues take uh, tend to take a back burner, and and we tend to lose track of the issues that are important to rural America and production agriculture, and so it 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 is difficult. Now I will tell you that when I went into this uh, business in the U.S. Senate, I believed that the forefathers had it right that that uh, we ought to we ought to keep our job and and keep moving forward. And agriculture is one of those few jobs that we can keep and still serve as a U.S. senator. And so I chose to do that. I think it keeps me connected to rural America better. It keeps me connected to real life better as as my wife and I run the place. And, and people don't believe this, but we don't hire anybody. We do it. Uh, by getting a bind, my son-in-law can come up or one of my brothers can come over. But the truth is that 99% of the work gets done by my wife and I. And it really keeps us connected with what's going on out on the land. And I think that's really important when you come back to Washington, D.C., and you're making policy because you can speak from it from a real-life uh, standpoint as we get home every weekend. But as far as your question about how do we keep agriculture issues front and center, it's tough, and it is tough. And and, and we need to, to make sure that, you know, we all love agribusiness, and agribusiness is important for agriculture. But but really, ag production is really what's been really put into a big-time bind. And I think that when you get things like this drought we talked about and you get things like uh, lack of competition in the marketplace and you get things like uh, trade deals that may or may not happen now, I think everybody gets a little worried if you're on the ground because uh, the margin for error is pretty small. Speaking of the Senate Agriculture Committee, the leadership, the ranking member there, Ms. Stabadow and Mr. Roberts, how do you feel about that committee? Are they on point uh, with the issues of agriculture, and do you think they're prepared to really shoulder the task of writing a new farm bill? Well, I believe they are, and and I say this uh, being probably the only person that's uh, you know signs up for the actively involved in, in production agriculture and not on that committee. But that being said, I've got a lot of respect for Senator Roberts and Senator Stabenow, and I think they understand the magnitude of this next farm bill and how important it is, and it is important. I mean, when we wrote the last one, we were at record prices. Truthfully, we had. I mean, we had a half a dozen of the best years I ever had on a farm between 2008 and 2014 because we didn't have a drought and we had really good prices. And so that that was the environment that that farm bill was written under. This is a different environment. Prices uh, have been a lot lower for cattle. They've bounced back some. And we're seeing grain prices bounce back. I don't know if it's a result of the drought or, or something else, but they're still not to levels where they need to be. Uh, and and so as we write this farm bill, that crop crop insurance, safety net, those equip programs that are out there are just really critically important. And and as I've talked to folks around the state of Montana, and I've talked to a, just about, in fact, I would say every ag group out there from from uh, grains to pulses to beets to cattle to sheep uh, to pork, um, people are, are very, very concerned about export markets. They're very, very concerned about what's going to be in this next farm bill if we're going to roll back some of the safety net protections that are out there or if we're going to be moving forward. But to your first question, absolutely. I think 
uh, both the chairman and ranking member are up to the task. I think they understand the magnitude of getting it right. Crop insurance is one of the top issues for commodity groups across the country. What are your thoughts on crop insurance, and especially some of those who would like to put a means test on it or take away some of the elements uh, of protection for producers? Well, I think I think we've got to be careful. I mean, wherever the level is, is put, I mean, means test makes some sense on one hand. We don't want to be giving subsidies to folks who don't need subsidies. We want to make sure that the taxpayers subsidize folks who actually need subsidy. On one hand, where do you put that? You know, I mean, there's uh, what level do you put that? Um, if you own much land in this country, you're, you've got a lot of assets, but it's really not assets that you can spend uh, because they're tied up in the land and in the equipment. So it, it's important that if if we go down the road of means testing, we understand what that is. And uh, if you're a guy that bought land as an investment uh, and you're getting big subsidies, I, I say, yeah, let's take a look at that. But if you truly are a family farmer out there trying to make a living, uh, and you know how you you know how financial intensive agriculture is these days, and I wish it wasn't, but it is because we get more people back into the business. But but we are where we are. So when we talk about means, we got to be very very careful. As far as crop insurance goes, you know, as I, as I talk to the folks, they just don't want to step back. They just don't want to roll it back. They they don't want you don't have to do anything extra. Just keep what we got, and, and then and then and then try to support some of the other programs around it that I think revolve around conservation. And I think if we're able to do that, that that'll be a win. But but my concern is is that we will roll crop insurance back if we do that. Safety net goes away, and then when prices go to heck, or the, or, the, or Mother Nature doesn't smile on us like we want, and we end up in drought situations, then then you got folks going broke, you got communities that are diminished, and uh, and it's not healthy for rural America. So I, I think moving forward, um, you know, th- those are those are really really important things. The, the mean testing thing. Uh, look, I'll, I'll take a look at it. The devil's always in the details, uh, but we got to be careful what we're doing. We might have unintended consequences. In your state, rural development is huge, and the dollars that are set aside in the president's budget are minimal compared to the overall need. How do we address rural America, broadband, and, and other means that are necessary to keep rural America up to speed with urban America? Well, I mean, I think it's a great question. It's one of the debates that's going on right now with the president's budget because it looks like a guy from New York might have written this budget because it doesn't really impact rural America in a positive way. And when you're talking about rural development, whether you're talking about clean water or wastewater treatment or or broadband or or housing, uh, all those things are really important in, in rural America. And you've got to have a budget that helps support those things. And... uh Look, I think just on a sidebar, I think one of the real opportunities out there in rural America is broadband. Why? Uh, I will put my quality of life up against anybody's. We're not rich people, but by gosh, you know, we got a pretty good quality of life. And anybody can have that quality of life if you have access to the broad, to broadband, to the Internet. And, and I, so I think if we could get more broadband service to, to, to more Americans that live in rural America, I think you'd see a, a flow of population back into rural America, and I think that'd be positive. But then again, they won't flow back even if they have broadband if you don't have good water and if you don't have good wastewater treatment. All those things come with rural development. And uh, when those kind of things are cut by, uh, you know, 20%, nearly 20% in the president's budget, 
it it can make it can make a big difference as to what kind of work can be done out there. So that's one of those things that that, that people need to understand. You know, it's a long ways between houses in rural America, but that doesn't mean it's important. And that doesn't mean if you don't have the if you've got the infrastructure out there, you'll get people to come back and and make rural rural America vibrant economically once again. What are your thoughts about uh, Secretary Purdue's reorganization plan that would do away with one undersecretary and add another? Well, look, I, I like Secretary Purdue. He's, he's made some great decisions, particularly on the Brazilian beef stuff. But on this one, we disagree. Uh, I think that that uh, we we need somebody that's in charge of rural development because I think it's important we direct the dollars that are there in the most cost-effective way to get the most bang for the buck. And so, uh, as we move forward and, and we try to work with the secretary everywhere we can, uh, I, I don't think he's right on this one. Talking about trade, key issue for U.S. agriculture. Members of the G20 and other headlines suggesting that the U.S. is becoming protectionist. Are we? Well, uh, we, we can't. We can't be. I'll just tell you that. If, if we're protectionist, uh, folks in agriculture are going to catch it in the shorts because we really, I mean, depend upon export markets for uh, for much of our pricing. And, and, you know, I think if I've got any argument with exports is, is, is when we do the exports, how much of that money that we're, we're getting from those exports are getting back to the farm gate. I think that's really the issue. The fact we need exports is absolutely critical. And, and I will tell you some of the things the president said has indicated we're getting pretty protectionist. And, and, and I, I think that's a mistake. You know, in, in our state of Montana, we raise a lot of wheat. We got more cattle. We got people and all that stuff's exported. And if we, if we have to depend upon domestic markets for, for our markets, I think it's going to diminish the opportunity for, for better pricing. So it, it's really important. Look, I, I think that. You know, everybody's got their concerns with NAFTA, and I certainly don't have a problem with tweaking it. We've got some issues with heading north with uh, with with, with uh, grain grades, and we've certainly got some issues with softwood lumber heading our direction. And so, I mean, there's certain things we can do with NAFTA to make it better, but I think it's dangerous to throw it out and start over. And the same thing with TPP. You know, we we used to do bilateral agreements. It's hard to keep up doing bilateral agreements. It's it's much easier doing multilaterals, which is what TPP was. And look, I wasn't happy with all of TPP. I thought the currency manipulation portions were very weak in it. But I certainly wouldn't advocate of throwing the whole thing out the window and, and starting over because I think that really puts our export markets into turmoil and and, is, and, and by the way, could be very, very costly for folks in production agriculture in rural America if it doesn't go right. There's one plus, and that's now an open beef market in China, which we were, what, 13 years in the waiting to bring that along? Yep. Amen to the administration on that. I'll tell you that. Secretary Ross and others did a great job opening that market up. Uh, I can tell you that, I don't brag, this is fact, uh, we raised some of the best beef in the world with the best inspections in the world and, and uh, to be able to have China to have access to that. And by the way, they don't want Canadian beef. They don't want beef from Mexico. They want U.S. beef uh, that's raised here and inspected here. And I think that tells you something about the quality of our products. And for China to have access to that, I think, speaks well for the cattlemen out there uh, to be able to, to be able to access that market long haul is just money in the bank. And, 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 you know, I mean, I think the other thing that's important about this that, that, that we need to take into consideration is they want U.S. beef, so that audit trail has to be there to ensure that that beef come, came from this country, which I think is great from my perspective because I've always been an advocate for country of origin labeling and continue to be. 
And one of the problems they always said about cool is, is they, they couldn't they couldn't implement it because they didn't have the audit trail to ensure that it was that meat came from the United States. Well, if we can do it for China, we can do it for Americans. So I think it's a step in the right direction getting into China, and it also has some uh, added added benefits too when it comes to hopefully getting back to being able to label the most important thing we do, and that's the food we eat. As the WTO shot down the country of origin labeling, do you see a way that the U.S. could go back, rewrite that, and have something that would satisfy all the players? I've, I've always been an advocate for it, and I think where there's a will, there's a way. And, and I, I think the WTO, uh, we ought to be working with them to try, try to get to that point. As far as what the intricacies are and, and, and the excuses that are made as to why we can't do it, uh, I think we just need to keep working and working and, until we get to a point where we can. Look, uh, I go buy a rim for my combine, and it's got stamped on it, just to be honest with you, most of the time, product of Mexico. Well, why the heck Anca Steel can be labeled with a country of origin and that T-bone steak you're eating isn't? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And so we ought to, we ought to get it figured out and, and we ought to move forward with it because, I, as I said before, uh, the, the food we put in our body, I believe, is, is probably the most important purchase we make. And so to know where it comes from is really important. And I think the Brazilian beef debacle has really, really shown that to be a, to be a fact, uh, that, uh, uh you gotta have quality product. This country raises quality product, raised to the highest standards and the highest inspections. There's a screw up every once in a while, but, but it's by far the exception and not the rule. This past week, veterinarians from the National Pork Producers Council on Capitol Hill and trying to lobby for an FMD vaccine bank to try to thwart off what could potentially be a devastating situation for the U.S. Uh, if it showed up for the first time since 1929. It's going to cost some money. Can we find a place for it? Well, I think we need to. I think it's, I think it's critically important. And i and I, and, I, and, and, and I got to tell you what, uh, as, as we talked early in this conversation about being connected with the land and making sure that conversation's up front when we're doing policy in Washington, D.C. So are the veterinarians, by the way. When it comes to disease and comes to threats, they, they know it. They know it before anybody else does. So we ought to be taking the recommendations seriously and, and find a way to, to make this happen. Senator, the one area that we've not talked about is endangered species. Well, I, I think endangered species are important. And, and look, I, I'm, I'm one of those guys that thinks, that, you know, the, the, the more species that leave this planet puts us closer to a point as humans being one of those species that leaves this planet. It's, it's not exactly the easiest thing to deal with because we have a lot of folks out there that look at that and say, geez, I can't do this because of the ESA and I can't do that. One of the things it does do is it brings people to the table, both local, state, and federal. And I think that's how you get solutions, is getting people to the table and finding out how we can modify. If you take a look at the sage-grouse issue in Montana, which was very contentious, uh, we got folks together from all ilks, and we we sat down and put our shoulders to the wheel, and, and we got a plan that's going to work for people in production agriculture and for the folks in the environmental and conservation community. So I think there's there's ways to make this thing work without throwing the whole thing out the window. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask for your thoughts on the health care debate that's in the Senate right now. Wow, it's really important. I mean, it's one-sixth of our, our economy, Jeff, and, and it's critically important, and we, we need to make sure that, that in rural America that, that we don't do something that closes those hospitals down because I've talked to a ton of them in Montana, and, and they all say, boy, if, if you do anything to screw this up and it increases our charity care, the care of people don't pay for because they don't have insurance, 
it'll put us out of business. I'm going to give you an example. Basically, my area was homesteaded back in the early 1910s. And, and in 1965, we finally built a hospital in our little town. It was nearly 50, well, a little over 50 years after the homesteaders first got there. We're about 50 years after that now, and we're talking about maybe doing something to close that hospital down. There's far less people who live there than lived there in 1965. And I'm telling you, if we lose that, we'll lose it forever, and that community will be diminished to the point where if you're over the age of 50 years of old, you can't be involved in that community because you got to get closer to where the hospitals are. Because we're talking about if that hospital closed, it's another 35 miles to the next one at a minimum. And that's a small hospital, too, that could close, and then you got another 80 miles to get to the next one. So uh, we we got some big issues back here in Washington, D.C., and health care is a big one, and we can't screw it up. And is the health care bill we have now, the ACA, the system we have now, perfect? Nope. we got a lot of folks that are paying too high a premiums of two high deductibles without any subsidies. But we ought not throw a baby out with the bathwater on this one. Let's figure out how to do it, do it right, keep those rural hospitals vibrant, and make sure that people can afford to get sick. Senator Chester, we want to thank you very much for spending time with us on this edition of Open Mic. And, sir, it is an open mic program, and you have the ball. Well, just thank you very much. Appreciate it very, very much. Uh, always good to talk to you, Jeff. Always good to talk to a fellow farmer. Take care, be well, and keep talking ag. Our thanks to Montana U.S. Senator John Tester, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nellis.